we're going to talk about what uh, the church means or why, it, why it's even worth having church on a nice day like this. It's part of a theme, uh, and that theme is uh, we've been re- reassessing and reviewing um, who we are as a church and what we stand for. And so I've spent the last two weeks talking about a kind of umbrella statement, which is restoration, that um, uh, the reason we exist is that people would be restored to God and to one another. And that restoration actually is God's idea. He's the one who initiated it. And he uh, desires all people to come to him. And the reason is that, that without him, we're, we're, we're not really alive. Even in the perception that we're most alive, what God has for us is so much more than we can ask or imagine. And so uh, our mandate is to be a place of restoration and a place where maybe people can capture a view of something they didn't even know existed. Glad you're thrilled with that. You know, you kind of ask, what's God like? And I've had that, you know, I often have that, that, that conversation. What's God like? You've heard me say it many times. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Where do people get their views of God? Where do they get their perceptions of God? Where do they get their understanding of God? They get it from places they've been. They get it from their families. They get it from... Uh, the, the news, they get it from a distance. They get it from expressions of people who say they believe in God and they put it all together and they deduce either this is something attractive or it's not. If you haven't grown up in a positive environment, the chances are if you read the news and you look at... Uh, I mean, I went to a school where they thought believing in God... It was an Anglican church school and they thought believing in God was fanatical. It's okay to believe that God exists and it's okay to go to chapel... But, I mean, being excited about rugby was, was one thing, or hockey in this country. But if you showed that same enthusiasm towards God, you were a fanatic. That's why I always joke, if you, go, if, you, if you go to the hockey arena and you wave flags and put paint on your face and you sort of go, 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 Canucks, apparently that's fine. If you do that here, well, it's a little threatening and it's a little, you know, we don't do that here. So it's okay for a puck in, in, on an ice, but it's not okay for God. Somehow we don't care what we look, out, look like over there, but in here we all... So it's all wrong way around. So how do you know what God looks like? You actually only can know what God looks like. A lot of people know what God looks like from a distance. And when, God, when people don't know what God looks like personally, the way they know what God looks like is this phrase, I find God in nature. And they look at nature, and the nature that they love is, interestingly, the nature where human beings haven't ruined it. So when people say, I find God in nature, they're going up the mountains to get away from the towns to get a piece of unspoiled nature, which is the closest they can get to what God created, and there they find peace. I'm not being sarcastic or cynical. Got to clarify that. (laughs) They find peace and refreshment in nature where human beings haven't done something to it yet. There's a metaphor in that. Human beings have the ability to take something like nature and twist it and ruin it and capture it and fence it in, keep other people out, own it. 
And so people say, well, I, I, I find God in nature. And what they find in nature is like the fingerprint of God or the heartbeat of God. In other words, my question is, if you think that's what God's like, you've only just got onto his property. Why don't you meet the owner? And what that brings up is a whole lot of fear. I had a conversation, and I'm just looking around because I don't think the person I was talking to is here. And if you are, it's okay too, because I'm not going to say anything embarrassing. I would never do that. (laughs) 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 But they they believe in God, and they're scared of coming into this environment. They're afraid of it. They will come eventually. But why, why are people afraid? It's because the perception of God and the perception of Christians is not a good one. And we want to uh, talk about that in a, in a more constructive way. See, Jesus had the same problem. The background that Jesus emerged out of the shadows when he was 30 in public ministry was one of very negative it was an oppressive culture and an oppressive church, synagogue. The, the synagogue leaders, you know, um, all got fat and wealthy. I always remember standing on Mars Hill in Athens, and I took out Paul's sermon where he said, Men of Athens, I, what, I noticed that you have all these idols of God. You stand on Mars Hill and you can almost see them. Mars Hill is just outside Athens. And... and and he says, I notice you have all these statues to these gods and, I, and there's one to an unknown God and I have come to declare to you the unknown God who came in this person, Jesus. And I remember standing up on Mars Hill and I, I think I was with a couple of friends and I, and I, I was pontificating uncharacteristically and, and, and this, and this uh, I think it was Coptic. I mean, it was a Mercedes-Benz after Mercedes-Benz and then the, the, the priests get out with their tassels and embroidery. And I thought, oh, Lord. You went to all of this and we're still doing this. I remember doing that in Jerusalem, sitting in the, 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 the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem during a service with all these fat monks sitting in a row, mopping their brows, looking bored stiff. And we're within 20 meters of where the Golgotha was meant to be and where the empty tomb was meant to be. We're able to twist everything. And we are able to destroy everything, even what Jesus did. So we just need to know our capacity to destroy the things that God gives as gifts is monumental. And the good thing is that he never gives up. And so Jesus came into the same kind of formality and same kind of interpersonal exploitation of religion. I mean, people take God and market him. And you had to go and make sacrifices and, and you would have to pay for the sacrifices, exorbitant fees. And we talked last week about Zacchaeus coming out of the tree and he had exploited people for the taxes of Rome. Just people were exploited everywhere. And suddenly out of the shadows comes this one who says, uh, who, who demonstrates the power of God initially by healing people and initially by meeting them where they were and the poor and the sick who got no attention I mean, there was a crippled man, a crippled man in, church, in, in, in the synagogue church who'd been there for years, a woman with a hunched back, and Jesus called them out and healed them. And all the religious people were, were terrified and furious. And they're furious because they don't know what to do with this, because they, they don't have that kind of power. So it shows them up as bad. That's your first clue to church, by the way. When Jesus comes to church. When Jesus comes to church, things begin to happen. 
So if you want to know what the church should look like, you just look at Jesus. And Jesus went around reaching out to people who were lost. And the first thing they experienced in his presence was warmth, acceptance, and a welcome. Which is very unusual because they, didn't, they weren't used to that. They were used to the religious people exploiting them, speaking down to them, patronizing them, telling them what hoops to jump through. Within 50 years or 60 years, baptism had become a catechism of two years. What we did today would be not allowed. Some people would frown on it today. Because you have to go through all this learning before you can be baptized. Which would be as stupid as saying we have to actually educate the sperm and the egg before they can be fertilized. It's like, why? All God wants is a change of direction. All God wants is an activated beep that says, I need help. He says, let's start there. And we have taken it into this whole, you have to earn it and you have to learn it. and You do, but not like that. Because Jesus always works from a place of response. So he comes to you and he says, I love you. And you get all awkward. And he goes, you'll settle down. But awkward is all right in front of me. The church is meant to a place where people encounter the living God. It's, uh, I thought of this because, you know, Jesus, when Jesus came into the world, he didn't look like what people thought he would look like. You know, if this is going to be the Messiah, he's going to come all dressed up and dolled up with a murk or something. Um, I remember spending a Christmas when I was studying in England and I went to this very wealthy family who had a, a horse farm in Wiltshire. And they had, they had acres and acres, one of the most beautiful places I've seen. And they had this massive, I mean, yeah, 40, we walked across a field and these horses circled us. And they were very wealthy. But what's the hallmark of real wealth in England? The very wealthy don't dress up. The very wealthy in England are old money. So you, you have nothing to prove. You actually don't, you just look like the normal village guy in your tweed coat and wellies. You don't, you don't know, you, 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 can, you can tell there's subtle hints, but you don't know by what you see. New money is always flashy. New money, people who are not used to wealth want everybody to know that they've got it. And Jesus came from old money. He had no reason to flaunt anything. He just walked amongst the people and he demonstrated the richness of God because healing is priceless. Love is without, you can't purchase it. And if you go through, you know, the easiest way, I prefer to look at Jesus than to look at Paul's teaching on these things. It's just because Jesus is so interpersonal. Paul takes it and tries to do a theology about it, which is important, but it doesn't touch as easily. I've read for the last two weeks this phrase from Luke 15:1, which is just before the prodigal son. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. So they were drug addicts and prostitutes and all kinds of other charlatans. They were trying to survive. And they hung around Jesus. Why would they hang around Jesus? Because Jesus treated them as friends. Jesus didn't accuse them with what they were struggling with. He actually reached out a hand and said, you're actually worth something. And we'll get to your issues. The first thing you need to know is that you're actually valued. 
And so he gathered, these people gathered around him. They followed him. They weren't getting paid. They were curious because wherever he went, things were happening. People were getting healed. What's he going to do next? It was exciting to be around Jesus. What is going to happen to church day? Nothing. John's going to talk for 40 minutes. Hope that we finish by 12. I want to watch the ball game. I mean, that's, you know, I, I share that frustration. I certainly don't want to have, I want to see God's presence and power released more and more here so that you never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to get healed. But it's going to be built on integrity, not on emotion. It's going to be built on God's word. The funny thing is people who love God's word are also terrified of God's power. So they love the theory of Jesus' healing. Just don't do it in front of me because it's awkward. They love the idea of God's word, but don't just get emotional. I would imagine a third of the people here, you, you, there are moments where God actually causes emotion to rise in you and you actually dumb it down. And that's actually the very thing God's wanting to release. Emotion is part of the way he heals. Because God, the way God works is he, 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 he spears your, your heart your mind will stop him at the gateway. Your heart will run out to meet him down the road. But the trouble is the last time your heart ran down the road to meet somebody was probably when you were about three. And your heart's got really wounded. So your heart doesn't venture out very far anymore. And your head keeps saying, fix him. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to get to him. But he's hidden. And that's why God brings us into places where he can begin to melt us and say, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. You can trust me. But how do we learn to trust God if we don't trust one another? You see, God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world what, as a human being. Why? Because he wanted to reframe and restore human beings. And he was making a very solid statement. He said, people will not come to a living relationship with me without coming to living relationships with other people. You need personal relationships. Personal relationships is actually what makes you come alive. It is also what kills you. Most of us have ample evidence of personal relationships destroying us. We're not really very comfortable with the personal relationships that set us free. Do you think? And once we begin to just recognize that, we can begin to say, so how do we move out of that? Well, what did Jesus do with people? You see, we live in this world, which is a visible world, and we live in this world trying to make sense of heaven, which is most of us have been taught that heaven begins when you die. So what you do is you go to church and then you learn about Jesus and you learn about what heaven looks like, and then you just try to, try to survive on earth. So when you die, you can have a nice funeral and they can say, oh, Johnny's gone to heaven now. Thank goodness. But that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to say heaven begins on earth. Heaven begins on earth where God's presence is. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he opened up the barrier between heaven and earth. I'm not going to explain all of this now. But he makes it possible, therefore, for us to know God's presence on earth as in heaven. So heaven begins now. And God is teaching us how, as sons and daughters of his, we can know peace and joy and assurance now in the midst of whatever circumstances there are. Because one of the ways of living on this earth is you, if you can control your circumstances enough, you'll be happy. Good luck. 
Then it becomes, well, if you can't control your circumstances, you can at least try. Then you can have a few friends and then you can put pods in your ears so you don't have to listen to anybody. And then you can take some drugs. And because you don't want to be a drug addict, you just get it prescribed by the doctor. I have anxiety. I can't sleep. And before you know it, you're addicted. But you quietly, nobody knows. But you have all this coping stuff. I just have a couple of drinks. Settles me down. I watch TV for hours and ends because I can escape. Whatever it is. But God is saying, I want my people to be alive in the midst of the circumstances of life. So what does Jesus do? I joked right at the beginning here, which is uh, you, don't, you, know, you don't get to choose your, your, your family and you also don't get to choose the people who join your church. And one of the problems as a pastor is you can't fire people because sometimes it would be nice to. So you kind of go, well, Jesus, you do love them and I keep telling them that. I, so I guess I better try and show it. We kind of stuck with each other. And if you, you know, a lot of people, they just, they come to, they come to church to sing a song and listen to a sermon and critique it or get blessed. And then they go home into the real world for the rest of the week. And then they, they, they belong to a few programs and, and that's what church is. But church, that's not what church is. Church is meant to be family. It's meant to be community, which means you can't just come and listen to me talk. You actually come to meet other people. And, and then when it really changes is when you actually come and say, how can I help? How can I actually contribute to the building up of this family to be what it isn't yet? Because I know what's wrong with it. This happens and this happens. It's like everything. Everybody thinks this is a cool church until they belong to it. Then they go, shoot, it's not as great as I thought. I think I'll go to another one now. <laughs> and so you have these serial, uh, not adulterers, but they could be. I go to this church for a year and then I go to this church because you always get offended. You always get ticked off. You don't realize that the place of offense is God's hand on you saying, I want to deal with that in you and I'm going to use this jerk to do it. I'm actually going to use other people to help you grow up. Because if you're isolated, you say things like, I love everybody. Bless Jesus. I love... It's nauseating. Because you have all the platitudes, but none of the character. And everyone can see it. So when you come, they run away. Because you're a noisy gospel shouter. But you don't stop to actually hear how they are. Or if you do happen to... I'm sort of joking with you here. If you do happen to listen, you listen so lo- as long enough to give them another platitude. Until you realize that walking alongside people, you know, is confusing, it's a mystery, it's painful, it doesn't always make sense, it's not fair. And you start crying out to God with them and say, Jesus, I just pray for you to touch them. And he goes, well, you touch them and that'll be a good start because I'm in you. You invite them out for supper. You welcome them. You say hello. You say, I believe in you. You know, one of the reasons JF and James are here is because I often say to them, there's so much more for you. Jean-Francois, you can actually become this guy who counsels people who are addicted. You could set half this place free and something in him swells up and says, do you think so? And James, you've got a life ahead of you that will be powerful and something resonates because they've never heard it. Have you heard it? I didn't get it. 
I didn't have people pulling out of me greatness. I had one guy who did. When I was beginning to say yes to Jesus, his name was Vic, and I've often mentioned him. He was the one guy who said, John, I believe in you. I didn't hear it from my father. I certainly didn't hear it from anybody else. And we need those words over us again and again and again because many of us are deprived. Many of us are stunted. Many of us are are wounded in that way. We were showing I Am a Second on, on Thursday. There was this woman speaking. She had black hair and lipstick. My mother died when I was 65. And they said, well, what did you get out of that? And I just said, what I got out of that was every now and again I'll see somebody and they remind me of my mother. And just something sits in me and says, I wish that screen would stop and she would just look at me and say, John, my son. Now, 20 years ago, I would have cried over that. And if I talked about it, I probably could get there. It's, it's, it's a wound that's being healed, but it'll never be completely healed. And we all have those kind of places. So what does God do to, to those of us who haven't had strong families, which is probably the majority? He says, you get a second chance. I'll give you a family. You are my family. I would rather some of you weren't, but you know... You, He begins to draw us in. And so what did Jesus do? You notice when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, John, James, come follow me. And they go, well, who else is coming? He just said, you follow me. Zacchaeus, come, we're going. He didn't say, I just got to talk to my disciples because I want to see if they like you. He seemed to actually just call people to himself and and they had to sort of deal with it. Judas, follow me. Hey, he's going to betray you. How do you know? I'm going to give him a try anyway. But we know what he's like. Well, I know what you like too. And he didn't want to join because you were part of it. Oh, I thought that was quite cool. No, some people have got issues with you too. Oh, it's just like the way it is. And so Jesus calls all kinds of people to follow him. But he calls them together and then they travel together. And that is what the church is meant to be. He called one guy. You remember, he was a, he, well, he didn't call him. He was a rich guy. He was a, he was a, rich, uh, he was a rich young man. And he came to Jesus, Jesus and he spoke to him for a while and he wanted to follow Jesus. And what did Jesus say? This one thing you lack. And because the guy was very rich, he said, sell everything you have and then come and follow me. And the man went off very dejected. You see, part of being part of a family is that God begins to bring up after a while, once the honeymoon is over, he starts through each other saying, this one thing you lack. Now you're already in a secure relationship, but he says you really need to deal with your materialism. It's actually, it's, it's, it's capturing you. And so it's only in community that he can begin to go deeper into us, to get at the cancers in us that are actually stopping us from growing with him. Whether it's materialism, whether it's workerism, whether it's a thousand and one things. You can't do that on your own. On your own, you will settle for so much less than God will. You will accept mediocrity. You will accept compromise. You will accept a lesser of an experience just because there's nobody to tell you there's more. You will say things like, this is just the way I am. Until somebody says, I I think it's what you've become. I don't think it's who you are. See, who you are is much more exciting than that. And so God calls us together to come together, to, begin, to journey together, to become all that he has for us. And if you want a quick glimpse of what the, uh, 
the church was at the beginning of the New Testament. And, you know, people, I think, over-romanticize this. They devoted, when, they, when, they, when Peter spoke and they were all baptized, they began to say, now what? Because Jesus said, you were the guys who actually crucified the Messiah. But it was done. And when he declares, Jesus has risen from the dead and you guys are guilty, you, you were the guys who were calling about, out for Barabbas. What do you do when you were in the crowd shouting at Barabbas and six weeks later one of the followers of Jesus says he rose from the dead and you called for the wrong guy? What do you do? Because it's done. Guilty. And we actually, when we said Barabbas, we said let the guilt of that call, this call, let, he, let his blood be on us. We cursed ourselves. What do you do when you're guilty? When you sincerely say, this is what I believe, and then you find that you were wrong. That's really what Peter was talking about. And when they heard, they were cut to their heart, and what did they say? They said, what does this mean, and what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. And what does repent mean? It says, just change your mind, just say, I'm sorry. And walking with Jesus, that's a word we have to learn a lot of. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Repentance isn't about depression. Repentance is about revelation. I was wrong. And the easiest thing to do is to turn around and say, forgive me. And then he says, if you really mean that, then be baptized and become part of those who follow Jesus now. And so 3,000 were baptized. And when they were baptized and they went from the Barabbas followers to Jesus followers, this is the kind of things they did. They, they gathered together every day for teaching, for fellowship, for breaking bread, and for prayer. What does that mean? They were beginning to be hungry to know more about this God who they hadn't understood at all but had touched their lives. One of the hallmarks of God working in us is hunger and a desire to understand more. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the signs and wonders. The demonstration of God's power was present among them. It wasn't just teaching and breaking bread and prayer. It was also the power of God touching people's lives, healing them. So people were actually afraid of going there because there was too much going on. What else was there? They had a lifestyle change. They shared possessions and resources. One of the hallmarks of Jesus working in your life is your generosity. It's easy to say, I believe, all kinds of things. It's going to be translated into how we actually relate to one another. So, I believe what people want to see today in the church is the manifest presence of Jesus. I just think everything I've described about Jesus, people want to see among us. Can I come into this place and not be judged? Can I come into this place and find hope even when I don't have hope? Can I come into this place and if I vomit on the floor, you'll still say you're welcome? Can I come into this place and mess up? See, my experience of church was I, I served the church for years. And then I screwed up. And, you know, don't screw up in the church. It's better to be a non-Christian than screw up and then they'll welcome you. But if you're a Christian and you screw up, they'll judge you. And we've got to be a place where when we fail... We're not giving license to sin. We're not giving license to failure. We just go, it's going to happen. Are we going to be those people who just will not let you go? Now, you can be gone, but the door is always open. We miss you. We love you. We care for you. We'll be here for you. 
Not in a patronizing way, because it's just, I know where you are because I've been there. In a humble way. And I'll have coffee with you even when you're unresolved. I'll meet you out there if you like. I just want you to know that you're never forgotten. And I want to be a place as a church where when you're sick and you're wounded, the power of God actually heals you. And we're hungry to see God's presence and power at work. This is a phrase I came across from Graham Cook, which I just really like. The church is God's body where every member is welcomed, accepted, loved, and valued as a contribution. And this is the phrase that I'm reading. There is room for us to live in Christ Jesus while we are learning to be Christ-like. This means we make space for the ugly and the beautiful in all of us to grow and change. So we should be people who are not disillusioned or not surprised when the issues come up. And if we could put all our issues up on that screen right now, we'd run out of here screaming. Or we'd go, wow, it's coming up, so God's going to deal with it. Let's stand and pray for God to make this an extraordinary place of his presence and his love. You see, if what I've just said is true, then you're very welcome. If what I've said is true, that there's nothing in you that is still unresolved that would cause you to be disqualified. If what I've said to you is true, then what I'm really saying is God is for us, not against us. So he says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, those of you who are struggling. Come to me, those of you who are, who are unresolved. Come to you, me, those of you who don't even want to believe in me or think believing in me is, is negative. I, I can handle it. Come to me. So, Father, I just pray now as we stand here, if there's anything in us that causes us to keep our distance, that you would just talk to us about that. If there's anything in us that says, I find you more on a mountain than I do in a church. And I ask you to forgive us where we have failed as a church. I ask you to forgive Jesus where we have failed as a church in Port Alberni or wherever in the world. Where we have failed We have not loved. We have not been gentle. We have not been merciful. We have not been kind. And we just ask forgiveness. And where the church has failed you, if the church has failed you in any way, in Jesus' name I ask forgiveness in the name of the church. Please forgive the church where it has failed you. It is not God's heart. And then hear the voice of God speaking about, I I, I don't want you to live as an orphan. I don't want you to live unsupported and uncared for. So I call you into a family. And I, and I ask you to trust me with the risk that you feel, with the vulnerability that you anticipate. You need, and we need, one another. We need one another to grow us up, to strengthen us, to resolve issues in us, and to heal the wounds of our families. And so if you can, why don't you just say, God, I want to be part of your family on earth as in heaven. And I want to commit myself to a family. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because if I commit myself to them, they're committed to me. Because I'm also good, bad, and ugly. And Father, I speak uh, very specifically this morning to shame. where Where people say things like, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not good enough, and neither am I. It's a lie from hell that you're not good enough, that you're not spiritual, that you're not worthy, that if you knew my secrets, you wouldn't let me in. Absolutely, you would be let in. There is nothing that can separate you.
from the love of God other than some bitter and twisted self-righteous Christians. So you are invited into the family. And you see, this invitation this morning and this talk this morning is about inviting us deeper in. Some of us here stay on the fringes. We're kind of part of, but we're not part of. We kind of belong, but we don't open our hearts. We kind of attend a few things, but we don't really commit. And I want to call you up into a deeper commitment in the name of Jesus. I want to call you up into something deeper so that you can experience more of the living God yourself. So I pray blessing over you. I pray blessing of sons and daughters over you in the name of Jesus. And I'm just going to prepare for communion, which is really the banqueting table of the Father. It's a visible sign of God's invitation for us to dine with him and to be part of his family. And as I'm preparing, I'm going to ask you to stand there. Don't talk to anybody. And just hear God saying, will you let me take you more deeply into my family? And if you have fears and reservations, then talk to him about those fears and reservations. I guarantee you the fears and reservations go back to your own childhood. And they go back to your own experience of family. And God would say to you, I want to give you a new experience of family. I want to restore what has been broken. But you need skin on. You need people to help. And I also want to use you because you are going to help people as well. And you help each other through friendship, by the way. It's how we help each other. We're not projects for each other. So, Father, I just speak blessing on friendships. I speak blessing on relationships. I speak a death to all kinds of fear in us about what might happen. And I, I, I speak death to the orphan spirit in us, the orphan that feels unloved or, or longs for something but never has it fulfilled. One of the things Jesus loved to do was what the Father did. He just embraced people and said, You're my son, you're my daughter, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. That's what God the Father said over Jesus. So hear him saying it to you. You're my son, you're my daughter. He calls you by name, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. And if you read that in, in Luke 15, the, fa- the, the house that they were invited into, there was music, there was the smell of uh, a meal being made, there was dancing, there was laughter, there was life. And Father, we pray that you'll make this church a place of life and laughter, where people who are incomplete, where our theologies aren't all perfect, are welcome to explore and to grow together.